I know that's kind of strange, but my grandmother has always been my best friend. Seriously. I'll never forget all the things Grandma tried to pass on to me, even the ones she didn't mean to. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Mercy. A warning. If anyone who lacks courage steps foot on her grave, she'll reach out and strike them dead. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. During the witch hunts of the Middle Ages, anyone caught with a magic-related book was routinely burned at the stake. Legend has it that necromancers created a special type of book that could avoid detection. Hosted by Arnie. It's hard being an outsider. And you and me come from a long line of outsiders. Stuart. Mom says he just uses humor to hide his real feelings. And Jacob. What do you know? There's a figment in my imagination. Is that all you think I am? This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Even the darkest things in life can be a blessing. Listener discretion is advised. Here we go. Here we go. Today we're discussing Mercy, starring Francis O'Connor, Shirley Knight, Chandler Riggs, Joel Courtney, Dylan McDermott, Mark Duplass, directed by Peter Cornwell. This is the now playing co-host who will not have any mercy on this movie, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is your host that's a class A butthole, Jacob. I didn't believe this movie existed. (laughs) Stuart told me there were two movies based on Skeleton Crew short stories, and I'm like, no, Stuart, you're wrong. It's a Twilight Zone episode, right? Grandma, it was on the 80s revival of the Twilight Zone. I saw that back in the day about the boy who's doing a death watch on his grandmother who's a witch. There's no movie. Yes, Grandma is the name of the work if you want to go to Skeleton Crew and find where this thing we're here to talk about today comes from, allegedly, barely, then you can go and read that very short story that did not stay with me. When I read all of Skeleton Crew, here's what I could remember. Arnie, you have it more fresh in your mind. Yes, it was a boy alone in a house with a sick grandmother, which was a perfectly normal thing in the 1980s. You left your kids alone in dangerous situations, and he's really scared because she's dying. She's got this raspy breath. Suddenly it stops, and he presumes she's dead, and then she, because of witchcraft, turns into a zombie and follows him around the house trying to eat him. Is that close? Yeah, pretty much you got it. I mean, they go into a lot of backstory. It is a lot here that she was a good woman who couldn't have children and turned to witchcraft and ended up having nine kids. I mean, that seems like a little much. Maybe pull back on the magic a bit. But she then, during the Great Depression, got rich and all of this. But... She was wanting to transfer her consciousness into her grandson. Oh, okay. So the witchcraft element is about living forever. Possibly, but she'd also, she killed her son in a fit of anger by spouting off some spell. And it's very tied, as a lot of King stuff is, to the Cthulhu myth. Because Mm. the witchcraft book she had talked about Cthulhu and Hastur. 
the way I remember it, like it basically just tapped into kids' revulsion about aging and death. I felt that way about being around old people that were dying. It was unsettling and gross. And it is ripe for horror. The problem is I felt like King had already exploited that with Zelda and Pet Cemetery. That whole story of I have to take care of my sister who has the gnarly back, that was already handled expertly on the page. We really didn't need Grandma. And, you know, like a lot of King short stories, it was the same idea he had published somewhere else done with a slightly different tweak. Here you're saying it's Cthulhu and witchcraft, but yeah, mostly it just kind of worked as my grandma wants to eat me kind of horror. Well, it didn't work at all in the grandma wants to eat me fashion. What I liked having reread it, and I'll discuss it someday on Books and Nachos in full, but it's such a tight third person perspective and it just is dealing with a young child, he's 11 years old, spooking himself out, psyching himself out. He constantly goes down these rabbit holes of thoughts in his mind about all the bad things that could happen, and then something bad does happen. And it's based on Stephen King. His mother took care of his grandmother, and sometimes he was left alone with the dying grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, what would happen if, and what were some of the things I feared during that time? It's fine on the page. It really didn't work as a Twilight Zone episode because it's full of voiceover because it was very faithful to the short story. But the short story has so much inner monologue with the boy who's named George that in the Twilight Zone episode, they just do it all as voiceover. I saw it I, and I rewatched it, but I was not a big fan of new Twilight Zone. It was one they put out in the mid 80s without Rod Serling. Like it was just hostless. But I think it was two things. One, it was the age of the horror anthology show, Tales from the Dark Side, Amazing Stories, Freddy's Nightmares would soon be out. And I watched all of those shows, and it was Stephen King. I was definitely into him in February 1986, but I also wanted to be a child actor. And I, ha I coveted the career of Barrett Oliver. The star of the episode is Barrett Oliver, who is also the star of The NeverEnding Story, if oh. you saw that movie. I'm like, who the hell is this? Okay, never-ending story kid. I saw the never-ending story a lot as a kid, so I yeah. didn't recognize him now. Is he the one in the adventure or the one just reading the book? Yeah, not the warrior kid. He's the one at home. Not our Treyu? Yeah. But yeah, I wanted his, like him and Henry Thomas from E.T., I'm like, I want their careers, which is laughable now, but I really did. I thought that I deserved those parts. For those reasons, I was going to watch it. Coming back to it again, it's available on YouTube, probably still is. I mean, go quick. You never know with those things. It's been up there for three years. That's where I watched it. It was funny to me how much it aped the conclusion of Suspiria, like with the Technicolor bed and the creepy old woman rasping, the wanting to possess the young flesh and make it its own. It just felt like, oh, they're copying Argento. I wouldn't have known that when I originally watched it, but now having the now playing perspective, very, very clear what the director was going for. It's nothing amazing. I will say this. It at least represents what I remember King writing, which what we're going to discuss next bears almost no resemblance to. So my question is then, jumping forward to 2014, Blumhouse gets this. So where was Blumhouse? I think they did Paranormal Activity. That was big. Those were probably coming out at this point. Insidious, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, there were a known quantity. The Purge, Insidious. We had reviewed Lords of Salem. So yes, they were known to me. As was the Duplass brothers. They had started a whole movement in indie cinema of mumblecore movies. 
Yeah, Mark Duplass, that was a glimmer of hope for me with this. I've liked the stuff I've seen him in. Yeah, he's in a lot of different kind of indie movies. He's here in this cast. And we were already doing Stephen King. By this point, we had already recorded shows on all the Carrie films, Salem's Lot, Shining. I was trying to stay up on everything that was in production about Stephen King because I knew we would have to add it to this massive franchise that we're doing. And I had no idea that apparently, allegedly, in October 2014, this movie Mercy hit some theater somewhere. That's not what I've read. Uh went back and I read articles from the time starting in like it was announced in October 2012 in February 2013 I found all the press releases that gave the cast and the plot summary and the synopsis and then they kept moving the release date to when it was done filming they didn't have a release date they didn't know what to do with it apparently they had the same problem with another Stephen King movie we'll be talking about a good marriage okay being made at the same time and Mercy, without any announcement, was dumped onto Video On Demand on Amazon in September of 2014 with a DVD and Blu-ray release promised for October of that month. The Blu-ray has never been made. There was a DVD. <laughs> no, we had a whole debate off air if there was a Blu-ray available for this. I had a hard time finding this one. I could have just bought the DVD, I guess. But in making sure I got the right version of Mercy, the 2014 one, it was a chore. But it is strange. Like, uh, Stephen King is a major quantity most of the time. Yes, there have been some really shitty lower-tier projects, but usually if you get his work, you paid some money to acquire it. The Duplass brothers... Blumhouse, I mean, they're known for cheaper budgets. It feels like it should have been a theatrical release. It feels like they were making something. And even this director has horror movie cred. I don't know if you saw his breakout film, The Haunting in Connecticut, but it made a bunch of money in March 2009. It made $55 million at the U.S. box office, which is a load. And it seems totally forgotten now. I went and pulled it up because I'm like, let's see what this guy has. I remembered the poster. The poster has a kid that looks a lot like Jesse Eisenberg, but it's not coughing up an ectoplasmic ball of goo. Does mm -hmm. that strike a memory? Vaguely, yeah. But it's really not about that. It's, I'll say this much. The director, Cornwell, he seems to have a passion for folklore of this region. He likes New England. This is supposedly a true story like Amityville or Conjuring. It kind of has the vibe of the witch but made by someone that really loves jump scares and, you know, may not have gone and watched elevated horror movies. And when I saw this, I was like, okay, I've never heard of it, direct to video. But I did think maybe there was hope when I saw the cast. I mean, you say you spend money for Stephen King, but especially these older stories, we know sometimes they were picked up really cheap from King or as part of bundle deals or given to Dino and then in buyouts and things, they just trade hands. You can't tell me that Dimension was really thinking about what they were paying King for Children of the Corn when they made the remake and all of those, but... They spent money on a cast of names that I knew. I mean, I'm not saying there's a superstar here, but Chandler Riggs in the middle of his Walking Dead stint. I mean, he was a huge draw at conventions that I went to. Dylan McDermott from The Practice. That's the only other name I recognized. Mark Duplass, as you guys mentioned. Shirley Knight has been nominated for the Oscar twice. 
Yeah, I know her from As Good As It Gets, that Jack Nicholson movie. She was also one of the three old ladies in Grandma's Boy, which is a movie that's a guilty pleasure of mine. Not one of the films she was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> no. But I did know she's an actress with a very long resume. Again, just seeing these names, especially, I usually pick Dylan McDermott as somebody who doesn't do trash. Like, he really examines his scripts and picks stuff that he thinks will have some kind of merit and something for him to do. I was wrong. But that's what I thought coming in. Well, and you never know. Maybe on the page, again, with all of these elements... It must have looked attractive to many different people. Was it well-funded? Again, Blumhouse is known for giving you very little, but a lot of creative control. They gave it to this director who had one hit about colonial American ghosts. Maybe that's going to work, or maybe it's not. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot, and we can discuss Mercy. Yeah, I'll just tell you right now, it's not. Wow, you're really not holding your cards <laughs> close to the chest for this one. George Bruckner, played by Chandler Riggs, was a boy always close to his grandma named Mercy, played by Shirley Knight. His grandma helped teach him to stand up to bullies, and they just had a very close relationship. George also has a close relationship with his imaginary friend, credited just as the girl next door, played by Hannah Hayes. But being an old lady, Mercy has a stroke. George's uncle Lanning, played by Mark Duplass, put Mercy in the cheapest of care facilities. So George's mother, Rebecca, played by Frances O'Connor, goes to care for the dying woman. Also along for the ride is George's wannabe chef brother, Buddy, played by Joel Courtney. George feels bad for his grandmother being so drugged, so he secretly replaces her sedatives with saline. But while in town, George and Buddy begin to learn dark secrets about their family history. Local pastor Gregory Luke, played by Eddie Jones, spills the beans. Mercy is a devil-worshipping witch. And not just any devil, but the demon Hastur. Mercy was unable to bear children, so she turned away from God and to Hastur. Soon she had healthy triplets, but her husband committed suicide. And the pastor says each year Mercy got more rich and more of what she wanted, but lost a bit of her soul and became a generally nasty person. George and Buddy find Mercy's spell book, and Buddy throws it into a wood chipper, but somehow that causes a piece of metal to eject from the shredder into Buddy's stomach? The mother takes Buddy to the hospital, leaving George alone with dying Mercy. And we finally get the setup for the Stephen King story. Oh, wow. It doesn't kick in until the very end? Pretty much. The kid along with his grandmother is the story. It does start with the mother leaving the boy alone because his brother broke a leg. And Mercy is starting to become active now that the drugs are gone, and she wants to sacrifice George, I think. Uh, it's the price she must pay to Hastur for all her favors? I'm guessing. Correct me if you understood this, because I didn't. I mean, it felt like she wanted to possess him to keep on living. Well, Mercy dies, but the demon puppets her body to continue to go after George. But George remembers his grandmother's lesson to look bullies in the eye and steer them down. And so when the ghost demon Hastur comes for Billy, he goes away or something? I think he cries into a book, which is the opposite of what you should do when you, a bully confronts you. <laughs> Just gonna say, crying into a book is not gonna save you from black eyes. Unless it's a trapper keeper. And we find out the girl next door was the ghost of Mercy as a young girl who says she loves Billy and disappears, as does my interest and credits roll. Yeah, your shaky plot summary says everything about how difficult it is to follow this work. 
I watched portions of it twice. I rewatched the ending twice. I then have become a member of a Stephen King community. I went to that community and asked them if any of them understood this fucking thing. Nobody knows. Well, they try and help. I mean, they start the movie. They're going to do everything they can to be like, all right, let's start with a quote from Dante. This will tell you the theme. Love made me is inscribed on the gates of hell. And so that tells me this is a movie in which love leads one to damnation. But who's love? What is that referring to? The first thing we see is that a woman loves her child. The 27-year-old Mercy McCoy is holding one of her triplets and her husband, Frank, stands behind her with an axe. I'm immediately thinking about The Shining. What's going on in this? He looks possessed. There's something about his face that makes him look demonic. He's very gray and has a lot of lines to his face. Yeah, he... I thought zombie or something. Right. So did her love make her do something to get these children in a bad way? And is he going to take them out with an axe? No. Surprise, surprise. He's going to turn the blade, maybe by choice or maybe because demons demanded it and drive that axe right into his head, split himself in half. Or maybe just because, yeah, he was going to take Mercy out. That's my conclusion by the end of this film. I think they try to play it that maybe he's just an abusive husband and then maybe commits suicide. I never bought that this was a suicide thing, that this was some kind of witchcraft or magic or something that made him turn that axe on himself. Watching the scene, it looks like the world's least efficient form of suicide. You know, there's a lot of ways you could take yourself out. Exactly. That's why I don't buy it a suicide. I don't know if that works. But yeah, getting the momentum to cleave yourself in the head. But the way we are shown the scene, we see Mercy there, and it's the 60s, so it's young Mercy. And the way she is screaming when her husband does it, later on when we're told this backstory and we see this scene a second time, the way I take it is, he knows there's been a deal with the devil, he doesn't like it, so he does kill himself. I do think this was suicide. Yeah, we'll get into the backstory, and I think they explain portions of this but again in following up on the idea of love made me did love make him do that or did love cause her to have children out of wedlock it's it's begging questions along that route but after that i forgot what retrospective we were doing we'd get paintings and paintings of demons and tentacle monsters and some of it honestly looked like clive barker art yeah no i like this art at the beginning Yeah, some of it looks tattoo-worthy, but I was like, in those credits, I thought we were in a Barker work, but no, it's Stephen King, and I'm trying to figure out what all these paintings are, but it is really nice paintings, and they're going to be part of the plot later on, I guess, but they're the best part of this film. What I get from the title sequence is we see in time-lapse that nothing really changes here on this farm, that the farm is something of a character, and that, yeah, clouds pass, weather changes... But nothing is ever different in this house. And it is the home of Mercy McCoy. It is where we will find Shirley Knight, the Oscar-nominated actress, for the rest of the movie. And we hear in voiceover her grandson admit rather sheepishly that his grandmother is his best friend. And I start to wonder, okay, trying to apply what the opening intertitle told us about Dante and the road to hell. Is this the love that leads to damnation? Is this boy in following and idolizing his grandmother that is going to display some unusual behavior? Is that leading him towards something dark? 
Yeah, I think this is a film about where do your intentions, no matter how good, take you. And you get this bizarre thing, you know, he's got a violin and he's going to tame a snake with it. Whose grave is that? There's a grave with a weird symbol on it. And Mercy's like, if you step on that, you're going to have to face your fears. And she goads him into stepping on it and a snake pops out. Yeah, that's her grandmother. Eve McGregor was her grandmother back in the day. And I also think that she, given the symbols on her tombstone, played with witchcraft in the same way that she did. It will be the owner of that same book that she will dig up that Eve had. And she says that if you have fear, she'll reach up and grab you. Kind of Carrie style. The end of Carrie with the hand is what I'm expecting. But no, instead it summons a snake that, yeah is charmed not with the flute but with the violin i don't know it's it's kind of like this is what west virginia i'm thinking the devil goes down to georgia you know the fiddle and the devil and all that i arnie you you've shown your hand on this it sounds like you really did not like this film i kind of like the bones of this film like there are elements that i like as we go into it i don't think it all goes together well but It's weird that a kid's taming a snake with a violin, but I kind of like what they're alluding to is just this witchcraft and this devilry. And, you know, again, like that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, it's it's such a bizarre song, but just those kind of folktales, the blues guitar player at the crossroads that makes the deal with the devil. I'm kind of into that story element here. Well, I'm into this movie during these opening scenes. Again, there's two actors I know. There's something with the snake that is implying, yeah, witchcraft or supernatural. And then she says, if you can stand up to a beast, you can stand up to a bully. And I find it very funny that he then uses the violin case. He fills it with rocks and smashes a bully in the head. Yeah, that's what's hilarious is like he plays this violin to tame the snake from biting him. I'm like, okay, how's this going to apply to a bully? Is he going to snake charm him? But nope, just fills it with rocks and smacks him with it. Yeah, that's an obvious lesson. But he also makes the comment in voiceover, I'll never forget all the things grandma tried to pass on to me, even the things she didn't mean to. And because we've had this scene with the snake, and because I know this is Stephen King and horror, and I've read the short story, I'm expecting them to tell me that this is a warlock apprentice. That he doesn't realize it, but that he has, in his genetic makeup even, what her grandmother practiced, what she practices now, he is going to be expected to continue the family tradition of playing black magic. Not exactly what we get, but again, expectations are set for a lot of things at the beginning of this movie. I truthfully believe some of this was being rewritten during shooting and some of it was being rewritten during editing and things that were passed on, even that she didn't mean to. I have no idea what she means by that. And then we're going to be introduced to Dylan McDermott's character, Jim Swan, at a dinner Mercy is hosting. And maybe it's because I primarily know Shirley Knight from comedic roles, But when she just stops and starts shaking and falls over with a stroke, that's funny to me. Well, I mean, again, that's it wouldn't normally be funny. And I wouldn't expect you to actually laugh should an old woman fall over after placing a roast down. But your association is with vulgar, crude comedies. Yeah, if you're thinking of Grandma's Boy, I guess this is funny. Her performance, her facial expression and the way that she slumps over. Strokes can come in all shapes and sizes, but that is... Not the usual one. 
this is what I'm wondering throughout the film. Was this a natural occurrence because of aging? It seems to be because that demon wants to get into another body by the end of this, but I didn't know if she upset the spirit somehow or if this was a supernatural cause to the stroke or, yeah, again, just because she's old. Well, what we see a little bit later is not only does she have a seizure, but it's changed her personality. Suddenly, she's got a pair of scissors. She's going after the older brother, Buddy. She slices him on the arm and leaves a scar. She almost goes for George, but at the last minute, she recognizes him and lapses into the bed. And what she said is, all I ever wanted was a baby. Now he is coming. Putting a lot together through inference, because this movie is not going to do a clean job of linking dots, I take it to mean, in order to get her kids, and we'll learn this a lot more thoroughly in the flashback that comes in the middle of the film, she had to cut a deal with a devil who now wants payback. And in taking his payback, he's taking her functioning. That these seizures and this aggressive personality is not her, but in fact him this is her paying the dues for finally being able to have kids and all the gold and good luck right she will no longer have good fortune and indeed they jump a year later and not even the nursing home wants to have her anymore and not just any nursing home rl flag nursing home which i have to believe mm-hmm. is a reference to the demon from the stand randall flag yeah which is better than the bachman diapers that are used on the grandma <laughs> well i was wondering is the kid's name george in the short story because i'm just thinking of georgie from the opening of it it confused me too because i was taking my notes and it is george in the short story but god knows that A year later, a Georgie would really overshadow King's fiction to that name. Now, the story is based on Grandma. I get that they need to make Georgie, the grandson, important. But don't you want to know a whole lot more about his mother, Rebecca? We're told that she apparently left this household when it was happy, went into the army. That was, what, the early 80s? It's now 2014. What? has happened how often does she get back to see her mother why doesn't she hold the same negative opinion that her other two twins hold of what went on in this house i thought she kind of did i mean she was the first to leave again this will be about a mother who wants all her children to always be with her and she got out of the house at 18 like right away joined the military that's how i took it like that was her ticket out of there but she is the one coming back to take care of her and She has allowed for her own son to have a very close relationship with this grandma. She lives close enough that he can come over to play with the potted plants and take violin lessons, but she doesn't ever like hang out because she's so angry at her mom. It's not a very clearly defined character. And I took it to mean based on what the Duplass character says later is she never knew the worst of mercy that she missed the really bad years when she was off in the army. Yeah, I just don't understand much about the family dynamic because Mercy had triplets. Mm-hmm. We're only ever going to meet two of those children. No, we meet no, all no, three. we meet all three. Well, the third shows up on the has a telephone call and shows up dead, but we never see her interact with the family. We're told she's in a mental institution. Right. We get her story. They didn't want to pay an actress to perform the part, so they got a voice actor. Yeah, and so we see the mother here, Rebecca, and then we get to meet Uncle Lanning, who's Duplass's character, and 
he's not part of the story that much either. I feel that when there's an ailing mother, there needed to be a bit more communication among those siblings versus it's said that Rebecca was sending Uncle Lanning checks to keep Mercy in a private room, but Lanning may have been abusing the money. Yeah, they say she has like six roommates or something. I didn't understand this. If it was six people in the house and it was just supposed to be her or if like people in the room. I thought it was people in the room. Like, you know, you want a private room. That seems like a lot of people, six people. There weren't six beds. I can tell you that much. No, I know. that. That's what's confusing, too. We only see one other person in that room. And that character is very sarcastic. He's introduced giving middle fingers. You never know whether to take him literally or whether he's just kind of getting over the top. But what we get the sense is, is that... None of the children other than Rebecca are willing to make a personal sacrifice and take care of their mother now that she seems to be in her last months. What I take to mean is not only is the nursing home tired of caring for her, we see one nurse who always carries a Bible when he's around her and won't even be baited into staying for double pay. They're scared of her, but it also seems like she is in a rapid health decline and wants to die at home. So that means going back to this farm and Rebecca, I don't know, whatever her life was, we'll never know because we never know her, uprooting herself and her two children to move back into that house, which she does or doesn't have a problem with. We're told two different (laughs) things, I feel like. And you said Mercy wants to die at home. I don't think Mercy has any wants. She seems pretty catatonic. I thought the stroke had removed all cognitive function. We're later going to find out she was drugged and drugged so that she wouldn't cast spells accidentally or be attacking people with scissors. I'm not quite sure. Is that your interpretation of that? Yeah. Well, again, I'm influenced by the short story where they said that grandma had spells And what they meant was she was actually casting spells accidentally. See, I didn't take it as accidental. I did think, yeah, she was, I don't know if evil is the right word, but yeah, she was involved with this deal with the devil, this witchcraft, and that was taking a bad turn on her. And see, I think there's another reading here too. Chlorpromazine is a antipsychotic. It's given to schizophrenics. And I take, if you're wanting to talk about passing on things that you didn't intend to, as the opening voiceover mentions, it may be that George is schizophrenic and that she's schizophrenic and all of this talk of demons is just mental illness because George has an imaginary friend just like she seems to have. How long were we supposed to think this girl was real? Because I just assume, I'm like, oh, this is Stephen King. People have shining powers and see dead people. This is probably a dead girl. I think we were supposed to think she was real for exactly one scene, which is the introduction (laughs) scene. Because then somebody from the school comes and says, who are you talking to? And he says, the girl next door. But then he says, God. So I now think this is an angel. I think this is an avatar of Jesus that has been watching over George. So specifically Jesus? Well, God, you know, Christianity, what okay. have you. All right. I, I think it's Tony from The Shining. I mean, I definitely think yeah. that it's either <laughs> mental illness, if you want to take the elevated horror reading, or more than likely the Stephen King reading, that he has an understanding of magic in the world, just like his grandmother did, just like her grandmother did. It skips every two generations. That makes them special, that makes them bullied, and that makes them misunderstood. And so it seems like what they're telling us 
is that these are cool people. These are the X-Men. These are mutants that in their time are misunderstood, but are actually good. So it's a little confusing to me when we get into the idea of death wolves and what she might have actually done to get her children. Yeah, I never got that these were ex-people or cool. I just figured something spooky was going on. I mean, the atmosphere, the lighting, this is feeling very ghost story to me. You know, it's got the Blumhouse fingerprints of all the furniture is brown and all the lighting is kind of green. It just, I never thought these were cool people. I didn't know what the little girl was. I knew it wasn't just an imaginary friend. But again, I'd read the short story. I knew that the grandma was an evil witch. No, Well, yeah, I think that's influencing your reading then, because what I'm seeing is a boy that really loves his grandma. And this could be a very sweet Walt Disney story, were it not for the fact that every third scene, there's a mention of Haster, a ghost who sometimes they imply is the husband with the axe. And sometimes they imply it's part of this folklore wolf that prowls around the hillside. I'm not really sure who Haster is, but I did Google it. Yeah, I Googled it too, and it goes back to the Cthulhu mythos, I guess. And we'll see Mercy at one point. She goes off into the hills. I never thought of Cthulhu being in West Virginia, but who knows? I guess he could be anywhere. Oh, yeah, New England for sure. Again, if there's one thing that this guy is good at, this director, I do feel like he's really tapped in to the cultural folklore beliefs and such. If you look at Haunting in Connecticut, if you look at this movie, even the names, you know, like a character at one point says haint, which I like, what is a haint? Well, that's a Southern expression for, yeah, a ghost. Like, these are very colloquial. And that shows an attention to detail that feels like someone that is from a region or has studied a region and wants to get the small stuff right. And that's why I wish this was a much better movie, because I like that feel. I I go back to The Witch, where that took a lot of effort to make that feel very period specific. And this does feel like they're tapping into something real, real folklore and real place and all that. I wish it was better. Like I'm rooting for this film is what I'm saying, because I want it to be better because I do like the folklore and and kind of all the stuff that's setting up the story. And it should be said, you really love the witch. I think you said it was your favorite film of that year. That was an A plus history paper. Whether you thought the movie was great or not, like that was a exceedingly well-researched and well-detailed evocation of the past. This is a guy that like wrote it the night before. Like <laughs> yeah. it feels like the C minus paper on the same subject. It's like, yeah, you got some of it, but you didn't do your work. And I'm saying give this to the A plus student because I want this to be better. I, I like the setting. I like the setup. And I saw in the opening that this is in West Virginia, not in Maine. As you might imagine, this takes place in Maine and King's story. But West Virginia is slightly north and west of Virginia proper. My sister lived in Virginia for a time. I visited there often. I didn't meet too many people with southern accents in Virginia. They were all pretty bland speakers. I don't think of West Virginia as southern. And so when Dylan McDermott comes in with this abysmal accent that he is trying to affect when nobody else is talking like a southerner i'm confused i don't think it's southern i think that's appalachian which would be regionally specific that would be correct it would be correct but my god it's awful well i wouldn't hire him for accents forever (laughs) any accent 
I've mentioned before, the opening and my struggles to find the love that is going to damn. Is it the fact that Rebecca loved this guy in childhood and then because she was needing to run away, sometimes it's framed that way, she needed to get out of this house that she let him be the one that got away and now he's married to the painter. You talked about the awesome paintings at the title sequence of this movie the woman that created those paintings is his wife he's a photographer it's mentioned i don't think we see his photos but is there going to be something about their unrequited love story that is going to bring about damnation you know this movie is full of false promises every time you ask these questions i'm like i see where you're going i wish the screenwriter did well i think they see potential and it's stuff that they've added because none of this Absolutely none of what we're discussing is in the source material. Stephen King had no concern about any of this. I don't even think she was named Mercy, was she? It was just Grandma. Right. So this feels like this all mattered to the director and maybe the writer who has done numerous King adaptations already. He he wrote Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. He wrote <laughs> 1408, which is supposed to be a good one. I liked it. And uh, the new Pet Cemetery. He also was responsible for that one. So one out of three. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the thing, yeah, like with Jim and Arnie, I get your frustration because I feel it throughout this movie. Like Jim, I get that he's got a thing for the daughter that's returned, but oh, then he's married, but his wife's like painting all these creepy pictures of like death wolves. I'm like, are they in like this cult with Mercy the grandma? Like, have they been influenced as well? I think like Jim is kind of going that way at one point, but I'm not totally sure. Yeah, it's crazy how his story ends up, but I believe what they're setting up here is that history repeats itself. And that Rebecca might have to step away from her marriage. She is got a husband. It's mentioned in one line that he sends the other son, the, the aspiring chef, sushi from New York. <laughs> is that where he got the sushi? I'm like, this guy made sushi in West Virginia. I wouldn't eat that. Yeah, one line of dialogue tells me there is a father still in the picture. Maybe it's a stepfather. I don't know anything about Rebecca, so I'm just grabbing at the thin air here. But what I'm trying to see is, is there a pattern of behavior that's repeating since we're talking about generations and grandmas and grandsons and what have you? Is Rebecca stepping out and going with Jim the same thing as her mother Mercy when she realized that all she could get from her husband Fred was miscarriages seeking the darkness of the hills? And so does that make Jim potentially darkness as well? We will eventually find out because George starts to get the sense that not everyone loves his grandma as much as he does. He heads into town and finds the local pastor who gives us a big old data dump about how Mercy came to turn to witchcraft. What a gossipy bitch that pastor is. Well, we saw that pastor approach when they were having sushi. He was like going to come to that meal and then Mercy gives him a glance and he walks away. So I'm like, okay, something's up with this priest. Yeah, they were the best of friends, the way he is to describe it. I'll take it as the literal truth. They were all the best of friends, Mercy, her husband, Fred, and this pastor. And she even was so religious, she helped raise the money to build this church and was a big member of the congregation. But she turned against God because God would never give her a child. And according to local superstition, as painted by Jim's wife, that devil is a death wolf. Like, I literally think that she went out one night 
and had bestiality sex with some creature in the hills. I thought the death wolf was there to eat bad people and shit them out in hell. It's a female, and sometimes the way they describe it, it sounds like things that Mercy wished to happen to people. I always thought that that wolf... A, I thought that wolf would do something. It never does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I agree. We can bend this however you want to see fit. I don't believe there's a definitive interpretation. But I think it could have been the devil or even her manifest in a supernatural form. Well, what we are told... The only backstory we get for this wolf does come from Charlotte, the painter, and she says it goes after bad people. And later on, George is thinking it's coming for him because he switched out the medicine and is giving saline. I thought for sure that wolf was actually going to be a force of good that would protect George at the end from whatever bad thing is coming because Charlotte says it will eat the bad thing and shit it out in hell. I thought it was going to eat grandma. My cleanest reading of this is that there is Haster and there is Death Wolf and they don't like each other, but sometimes they get together and make babies. And that's <laughs> what I think happened in 1967. Mercy got three triplets out of it, but husband Fred didn't like, he knew that he wasn't the father of them. So he became the town drunk, became the town abuser, was disinvited from the church. And then eventually, I think, was going to kill the children and or his wife. And she made him or Haster made him turn that axe on himself. That was my interpretation. And I don't know how much a difference there is between Haster and Mercy. I, I think once she makes that deal, they're more or less the same thing. But yeah, whether it's the, the actual demon or Mercy using magic powers, I take that suicide was not his choice. He was going to take her out or take the kids out. Well, that's the way it plays, but what we're told is she went up in the hills. The pastor says when she couldn't have the baby, she went up in the hills and got this magic book. Yeah, although what we're shown is not her coming up the hills. She just went out in the lawn with a shovel and dug it up because she saw a family photo and I guess figured it out that that was where Eve, the woman whose gravesite is now haunted by rattlesnakes, that was where she kept it. And the way she gets what she wants is by crying in the book. So as I take it, her magic comes from her tears. Mm -hmm. She didn't cry when her husband was coming at her with an axe. So I think that that wasn't her magic. No, he was trying to separate the family. He was trying to get rid of her or the kids or all of them so they couldn't live together. And that's why that magic works and makes him turn the axe on himself. And she looked pretty frightened when he was, I mean, she only had a second to respond. But I mean, you have to cry into the pages of the book to make the wish actualized i don't think that if you go around crying about something that it works the same way but i don't think she has to cry like every time she wants a wish i think she just cried that hey i want a family i want children the husband was a thing threatening that family and those children so that magic worked against him and indeed that's what the pastor says his quote is she loved children too much so to go back to that opening quote that i'm always trying to tie in here because i feel like the editor, if nobody else, somebody was trying to underline a theme you could follow. If the theme is that love can be ruinous, her love, her desire to have children above what God was willing to give her led her down this very dark path that meant that she, in some ways, couldn't be loved. 
because her children don't really like her. Rebecca leaves for the army. One of them says, I'm going to get married, the other daughter. And then there's this horrible story about how, you know, on her honeymoon hiking trip, the husband is mauled. The bear attacks. Yeah, by a bear that leaves no tracks, which again, I'm trying to think, is that a death wolf? Is that Haster? Is that something else? Is that Mercy turning into a creature Obviously, it's supernatural if it's not leaving tracks. And if Mercy didn't want her daughter leaving her by getting married, this was her will. We can know that much for sure. Yeah, I figured she cried into the book and made that happen. But later on, the book is going to have things happen without tears. It is very inconsistent rules in this movie. I don't think she needs to cry into that book every time. I think she made her wish. And, you know, talking about... The Twilight Zone, there's that kid who wishes people into the cornfield and he can just make whatever happened with his mind. I think once you make your initial wish, those evil spirits or whatever, they do everything they can to guard it and make that wish happen. And so she wanted her family forever. So evil things are happening. So her family stays together forever. And ironically, it has the opposite effect because, again, what happens to that woman after her husband's mauled? She's sent off to the mental health ward. And, you know, the son, Lanning, he has nothing to do with her. He agrees to come back to babysit for one day while the family goes into town and it ends up being his death. Under weird circumstances, we can only speculate they come back. They watch grandma and son burst through the front door. We think he's choking her. What's said is something about he's choking her and he has an aneurysm and he ends up being the dead one. And his flesh is all covered in, you know, veins and it almost looks like she sucked the blood out of him. Yeah, it doesn't look like an aneurysm. I thought she looked healthier. Maybe in some kind of vampire way, sucking the blood out of him like as a way of her living on. But later we'll find out her medical condition is worsening. So I don't think that there's any benefit to killing her son other than he was maybe going to kill her. I think it's just honestly lazy storytelling in a horror movie. And we needed to increase the body count. We had only had one death. It has been a while and we'd killed the husband and she's going to kill both children who don't matter. She's not going to kill George's mom. And so we just have to have that happen. I, you know, remember in one of the child's plays, I think it was part two where the teacher is mean to the doll when he's in doll mode and you're like, oh, he's going to come back and get her. Uncle Lanning was talking bad about grandma. And he made her have six roommates. That, that's reason enough. One thing I noticed, and this is just a very minor thing, but he's got this sweater on that has a bunch of diamonds across it, right? And when he's talking to George, they're shooting him from mid-diamond up. Well, he has seven peaks, which could spell mama. Okay, wow, you went deep. You really paid attention to his sweater. (laughs) And what would that mean? I guess as much as anything else in this movie. (laughs) I thought since his mother was going to kill him shortly after that, and he was telling tales about the skeletons in the closet, I thought in the close-up his sweater might actually say Mama because of the peaks, but then when it cut out, it was just a weird, ugly sweater design. Yeah, a sweater or a premonition. Either way, he is dead. Nobody seems that upset about it. I guess everyone thought he was kind of a jerk. And really, it's more just 
What does that mean for Mercy? There's less people to watch over her. Is she a murderer? I do think George is starting to question, well, maybe she's not as benevolent as I always thought she was. He's asking this mysterious girl next door if she should trust her or or what it all means. And she starts reading her Bible, too. And we get this quote which is real, apparently. It is in Exodus twelve eighteen. I looked it up. I couldn't believe it. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. You didn't know about this? Mm-mm. You can't be a witch in the Bible. That's bad news in the Old Testament. Listen, I can never tell what's really in the Bible versus what people burning people at stake say is in the Bible. I know the Bible doesn't talk about abortion. Oh, no, there is straight up do not like witches in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the laws of social responsibility in between paying for a dowry if you take an unmarried woman's virginity and don't have sex with animals. Exodus and Leviticus are crazy, man. You get some crazy rules. <laughs> So that's all fine and well. Again, as much as it can be about George trying to understand his grandma, again, if the story is grandma, that seems like a really good focus. I think that they're starting to find a spine to the story when he and his brother Buddy open up the floor, find a secret compartment, and we finally get the weeping book. You know, again, despite what I've said, I've been into this movie and really trying to decipher it. I feel like there's layers to it that I need to peel back, and I have trust that is betrayed, but I have trusted the screenwriter and the director to tell me what I need to know. When they find this book, I get excited. You know, the book where you have to cry. I'm like, whenever you find a book, you find answers in a movie. It's Mm -hmm. always the point. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be a red herring. And indeed, by running down to the painter's workshop, they look up some things. They confirm this is a weeping book. This is something that when they had the, the witch hunts back in the Middle Ages, necromancers would disguise their spell by making the pages look blank and you basically would see the writing once a person cried on the pages. So what's going to get them in tears? World hunger? Julia Child dying too soon? (laughs) No, it's going to be George, of course, thinking, how can I save Mercy? Is there any way to help this poor woman who is my best friend? And that reveals not writing and not spells, but illustrations of his face with blackened eyes screaming. Yeah, really bad CGI. Yeah, I feel like that was, I mean, it's visual. It's a movie. You want to, you know, see what's going on. But what is it illustrating? It's telling us something bad will befall George. But what, even after watching the rest of the movie, I can't tell you. And if his wish was to help grandma to save her. I don't know. It kind of makes sense if she's a dying vessel and she's mostly Haster or whatever's possessing her that, yeah, it would need a new vessel if that's what's going to save her because that's what she's become at this point. I guess that's why they try to possess Georgie at the end. Okay, so that is his desire because I like active characters. He actively asked this book to give me a path to saving, if not the literal body, but the soul of my grandma, what was reflected back at him is the idea with the blackened eyes, well, then you have to become the new host for Haster. Totally freaks out Buddy. I don't know, is he a witch or something? He's got this supernatural sense of taste. He's always bragging that he can taste things that other people can't and carries these (laughs) special spices with him everywhere. But he throws this book into the mulcher and the mulcher throws a rusty something back. It's never a good sign when there's a wood chipper in a movie. I saw the two of them fighting over the book in the wood chipper. I thought one was going to go in, yeah. I thought it was Buddy. I mean, George was the main character. I thought Buddy was in that wood chipper. 
He's lucky he only gets stabbed in the stomach. I don't know where the metal comes from. Uh, you know, it looked like an older machine, and, you know, things fall off, and I don't know. No one's maintaining that machine. It's demon-possessed. Who cares? It's the book's revenge, but is this the new mangler, the wood chipper? I was going to say, you went along with the mangler, and, you, and you're questioning this wood chipper? Right. Anyway, it's getting us to the setup for the actual story. It tells me we're finally reaching a climax, and that is we want George and Grandma alone as she's expiring. And what will that mean if it follows the book, and I expect it to? It means for at least some portion of this, George is in danger of Mercy hurting him. And Jenny's trying to get in on it. It should be said that she has been writing letters from the asylum and then, like, sends him 1-800-Flowers. She's not trying to get in on it. She's trying to save him, right? Like, she knows something's up because she sends the devil's bane. It's this Jesus flower that's supposed to ward off demons. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I mean about getting in. Like, she really is, by this movie's interpretation, the line between mental illness and clairvoyance and magical abilities is very, very blurry. And what looks to most people as someone that should be institutionalized, even isolated from other patients, really is the fact that she can, she says when she makes the phone call, I had a talk with Mercy's soul, and what really Haster really wants is you all along. The grand scheme has always been to get George on this farm to take possession of him. And they Google Hester here at this point. He's a big octopus with, like, leering teeth where a vagina should be. Well, of course, he's a Cthulhu monster. Yeah, he's definitely from the Lovecraftian design. Again, though, also a little bit Barkerish with the sexual nature of it all, with the lascivious tongue. At any rate, we'll never see that creature. When we finally get things going around here, it's a lot of, I don't know, just running around in the dark. Yeah, he's going to call Jim and run over to Jim's house because he needs help with Grandma. And that's, I mean, we should have said that Grandma's already died and turned into some kind of zombie who's, like, drawn, like, magical runes all over the floor and is trying to choke him dead and incant a spell when he burns her face with those verbena flowers. But, yeah, he gets out of the house. The Death Wolf is there as a way of ensuring that Mercy doesn't follow him or as a potential threat along the way to Jim's house. It never does anything, so there's no answer to that. I thought for sure the wolf was his protector. The wolf was there for the bad people. I thought for sure Jim was the wolf. I thought that was what they were telling us. I was like, oh, there's a relationship between people that step out on the marriage and this wolf, and we'll find out that Rebecca and Jim and all of this not exactly. Jim is some kind of betrayer. He's made a deal, right? But not with Mercy. What is really super crazy is he says, I made it with the pastor. No, with Haster. Oh! <laughs> okay. Well, then it's not as crazy as I thought. I thought he said yeah. the pastor. No, Haster. How the, are they indicting Christianity? Like, how can I get in on that? You watched it. I'm going to call up my pastor if it means I can do some of this shit. <laughs> no, I thought he cried in the book. I thought somehow he knew to cry in the book and he was going to become a famous photographer if he killed George. Yeah, I thought that Mercy was getting a cult going and because I don't know what happened to all her gold. Like she found all this gold. She doesn't seem to have a whole lot of money at this point. 
Uh, you know what? Healthcare, insurance, that nursing home. They do. They'll take all your gold. <laughs> yeah, true. I thought she was like building up other followers. And that's why Jim's wife did all these weird paintings because a creature she saw from, I don't know, dances with demons that they do. At the very least, she or Haster has made the promise that I'll get Rebecca to be your side thing or maybe your new wife if you will do my bidding. And somehow in doing that promise, he decides it's a good idea to get his gun out and he's going to shoot George? Which doesn't seem like Mercy would want that because she loves that kid. Like, she taught him how to charm a snake. And Haster wants his body, so nobody benefits if the kid ends up in a grave. I can only presume that McDermott gave them, like, I'll give you a week. And they ran out of time, and they just didn't film the scenes they needed for him. (laughs) Because the way he's taken out of here makes no damn sense. Like, all of a sudden, he's just standing on the side of the road, and somebody in a vehicle will never know runs him over. Yeah, there is way too much just happenstance in this movie. The happenstance that the flower shows up. Maybe it was sent by the ant. And truthfully, Jim's problem is he should have taken a lesson from Thomas Jane last week. You don't wait. You just pull the fucking trigger on the kid. (laughs) I don't know what's happening here. Again, I'm starting to think, well, maybe he's aligned with Death Wolf, who is against Haster, and there's some kind of power play with supernatural forces going on here. If that was an idea, it's one that is not realized. It's one that is not articulated and fully formed. And what we get is a very confusing scene that makes us believe Dylan McDermott had no purpose to be here at all. He really didn't. With that accent, he would have been better left on the cutting room floor. You could have just cut him completely out of this movie. But it's a 79-minute movie, and again, he's a known quantity, a handsome movie star. You want some of that in your film, but yeah, why didn't they write him a better part is all that I can think. Why isn't he the brother that got killed? Seriously, you're just wasting him, and he was one of the reasons I was excited for this movie. But yes, truthfully, for the effect that he has on the script, for the effect that this wolf has on the script, you could cut all of this. This could be trimmed down to that Twilight Zone episode runtime and be better for it. Oh yeah, I definitely thought, I'm like, 79 minutes? They're struggling to get to that 79 minute mark. It feels like this is a short, it came from a short story, and... Maybe they had some ideas because it sounds like they added a lot of stuff here, but they were not fleshed out. They did not workshop those ideas enough to make a strong 80-minute movie, which Jonah Hex wasn't a strong, like, 72-minute movie. So short movies, I guess, aren't easy to make either. Yeah, it's... I don't know if it's not articulated or they ran out of money and they couldn't articulate it, but things are just suddenly happening. George is finding Jenny dead in a car, killed by... Mercy, Death Wolf, Haster, (laughs) Dylan McDermott. I thought it might all be a dream. I honestly, (laughs) because we had never seen this ant before. We'd had a phone call. We'd had some mentions. We had a letter that the hospital says there was no way she actually wrote. When we see this person, I think it's honestly a dream sequence or a nightmare or a ghost. I have no idea that that's the ant. Yeah, but they already had the ghost because it's the girl next door. And she pops up and says, it'll be suicide if you go back to the house. But, you know, we set up in the beginning and they're trying to... They are. I can tell the editor, if nobody else, is really trying <laughs> to find the story. They're really like, we we set up in the beginning something. He was bullied. His goal as a character is to stand down and face off against oppression and bullying. So he's got to go back 
and we get, I don't know, his mom's tied up and then he takes the axe like he's going to be possessed and he ends up whacking a younger version of Mercy, but not the girl next door version of Mercy. (laughs) I'm so lost. I watched this twice, too. I'm trying to figure it out. But Mercy is now like the zombie with blood coming out of her eyes. And there's a whole spell circle with candles. And that axe is like possessed. It's moving on its own at one point. Right. Is it the wolf? Is it Haster? Is there any way to delineate one from the other? Is it the ghost of Fred who sometimes seems to be popping up? I honestly wonder if they ever knew. It would be interesting to know if they ever knew or whether they just filmed stuff and the editor said confusion is the way to go because if they knew how little we knew, they would hate us. Who's Fred? That was the husband that put the axe in his head. At the grandpa. Beginning. Okay. Yeah, grandpa. Yeah. I didn't realize his name was Fred. But yeah, I don't know who's moving the axe. I'm guessing it's Haster who is the black woolly demon that is puppeting grandma at the end that's how i take it whoever she made the deal with whoever gave her the babies be it wolf haster or other cthulhu spirit that is what is now eager who has always wanted her grandson that is what i got out of one line of dialogue that jenny said on the phone his goal in giving her those children was that he would eventually have a sire for himself And that is George. And George is more or less consenting, it seems like. He's on the ground. And I think in order to save his grandma, he kind of agrees. His grandma's dead. He's not saving anything. The way Chandler Riggs is playing it, I feel like he's weakened and the spirit is overtaking him and there's nothing he can do about it until he has a flashback of his grandmother telling him to stand up to bullies and then the spirit just goes away. Yeah, the hoariest of cliches of like, suddenly we have the actress standing in a sunny field, you know, just saying, I love you. I mean, that's <laughs> that's never the way to handle it. I'm here to tell you, don't poltergeist to it. Do never do the cheesy, <laughs> we're going to hold hands and glow and our family love will wipe away the evil. That is stanky. You know how you believe that Dylan McDermott just ran out of time? I honestly believe this project just ran out of money. Uh Uh-huh. I'm totally with you. Which is, again, why I say, did they ever know what they were doing? (laughs) Or were they forced into this by lack of funds? Again, with this guy writing so many other produced scripts, I have to believe there was one at some point that had more cohesion than what we're looking at now. There had to be a better tale with purpose being told. I would agree. And, you know, directors and others can modify scripts long before the shooting stage. And we've already talked repeatedly about what can happen to scripts where things that are a good idea in one draft get kept and then they're a really bad idea in the last draft like the wolf here and it makes no sense in this draft dylan mcdermott i mean take your pick they're just it's littered and again if you were to cut it all back down to the stephen king short story i'm not sure you would have a good movie there either they needed to build something more than what king provided them And it seemed like this director had something personal to say about mental illness and the stigmas that come with it as it manifests through generations. I felt like there was something legitimate 
that he was trying to get at with his New England home and this idea of schizophrenia. But man, it sure is inarticulated. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Stuart, and that's why I'm kind of sympathetic here, because I see, I'm like, oh, there's maybe a good movie here. They really screwed it up bad, but yeah, the idea of mental illness, and just, I, I always like the idea of, you know, something in Lord of the Rings, no matter how good your intentions are with that one ring that's all-powerful, it's always going to corrupt you, and, and to take this idea of love and that it could actually corrupt you and be a bad thing, I like to explore those kind of ideas. But I want it more cohesive when they're explored in a film or a book or something like this than this film is. Yeah, this has started off as actually intriguing me. And I actually had hope at the time of pushing play. And it has just fallen apart. So by the time we're at the end, this story, if I can even dare call it that, is a shambles. Yeah, they're burying a book and I'm like, just go ahead and do the rest of it. Like the <laughs> script, the production budget, all of it. Just bury that George deep. I think they did. That's why it got shot onto Amazon Direct-to-Video instead of being released in any relatable form. But I, I love that Buddy, the brother, he's fine. He shows up just next to the thing. And then, like fucking Monty Python, just a flesh wound. Right. Or maybe he cut a deal with Pastor. I know I'm ready to. Can we end this? Pastor. Jacob Stewart, will you show this film any mercy? Jacob. I will show it a little bit of mercy, and I, I think I've stated why. One of the things I do, like, when I watch a movie and people are like, this is great, and I'm just like, eh, I don't get it. I'll, I like to read, I call it user reviews, you know, just common people. Forget the critics. Like, why, why are normal people attracted to this or that? And, like, one film recently that I watched was La La Land. Finally got around to that one, and I didn't think it was great, so I'm like, why do people think this is great? And one review I read, they're like, I love Emma Stone so much. Five stars. And I'm like, huh, I guess that's how some people operate. And then I watch this film and I'm like, oh, I'm giving it mercy. I, I'm sympathetic towards it because it reminds me of The Witch. It reminds me of Hereditary. It's just a really bad version of those films. But I like those films and I like those ideas. Uh, but it doesn't make this recommendable. I cannot go there because it is... Thank Haster! Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's either a really great story or just a really boring story of what happened with the production of this film. I'm not sure which way it goes, but like, I am more interested in how did this get so screwed up and have so many weird ideas that never go anywhere. I think about that Fantastic Four reboot that came out a few years ago. Not a great film. I was sympathetic towards it because there's ideas I liked in there. So I'm not going to slam this as an awful film. It's not good. It feels very amateurish. Like writers, directors, it doesn't feel like people really knew how to accomplish getting a movie made. But I'll give it credit because there's, there's some interesting ideas that I wished were put into a better film. But still, eh, skip this. Not a recommend. Stuart, you know, the most dramatic thing that I feel like has happened to indie cinema since I went to school was the way that costs came down with digital cameras. And suddenly you could make all kinds of movies really, really cheaply. That was the dream. I was like, oh, that is going to be a great day when you can just have an idea and anyone can realize it. And then you watch something like Mercy and you're like, nope, I want that stopgap. <laughs> I want someone to put this movie in turnabout and fix what's wrong here. And it would have. This movie couldn't have been made in any other decade than this one because any other studio, it happens all the time. People you know star in movies that are never released 
are put on a shelf because they know it damages careers and they don't have it together. There's a Revenge of the Nerds remake that we'll never see. It only shot for two weeks and then they fired everybody. And that's exactly what should have happened to this production. (laughs) They should have known very early on that this was not coming together. It's just bloated with confusing subplots and the themes are muddy. The character motivations make no sense and you just don't release it. It's very easy to do. It didn't cost that much money and just let it go. But the problem is these days there's an outlet to get even the cheapest movies out to some kind of audience. And it's to the misfortune because I would have liked to not experience this movie in this way. I do agree, Jacob. It has some interesting notions about the fear of inheriting schizophrenia. But I like the good versions of that movie. You know, go see Hereditary. Go see Take Shelter with Michael Shannon. And that's the experience you want. When you have an experience like this, it's just an exercise in failure. And so I would put this on Lesser King. I would say maybe it's one of the better, in terms of ranking one of the better Children of the Corn kind of areas. But this is pretty unsatisfying in all ways. Yeah, mercy would be to just let us skip this film. That would have been a sign of mercy. Yeah, that's what, exactly what the real mercy would have been to put it out to pasture. And I don't even understand why the character in this film is named Mercy, which is a kindly old grandma who sold her soul for babies and gold and all this other stuff. This is a muddled mess of a film. I do believe it ran out of money, like I said, but long before it ran out of money, it ran out of vision. Because if you watch any given 10 minutes of this, you will find at least three contradictory statements. Whether it's the wolf's purpose or how the book works, why does the book start showing things without tears later on? It just flips open. I mean, it is arbitrary, scene after scene, and that is frustrating. The reason I'm so mad at this film, the actors, with the exception of Dylan McDermott's accent, I feel they give what they can. I feel like the cinematography is decent. I feel like you could have had a good movie here. There were competent professionals working on it, but somehow the script never got finalized or they weren't getting the same revisions of pages and what was shot turned out to be a nonsensical nightmare. It's really incompetent as an end result, despite the talent that went into making it. It's a really solid to strong not recommend. I mean, worse than the worst of the king. It's not worse than the worst, but it leaves you with that feeling of being undone. Like just something that had not enough love to make it real. It doesn't feel like a legitimate film. It feels like a sketch of a film that somebody said, oh, it's a film. All right pay us some money, and it should just never have been released. Watch the Twilight Zone episode. It's better than this. I don't even like the Twilight Zone episode, but I do feel like this is, if not among the worst, it's second tier bad. It is so frustrating and unfulfilling to watch that it's in there with the Children of the Corn sequels. Yeah, the better ones. Oh, yeah, I'd watch this before whatever Children of the Core Michael Ironside shows up in, or sometimes they come back for a third time. Oof, yeah, don't go to Antarctica. <laughs> Let's not even talk Mangler, but yes, I see. I actually would rather rewatch Sometimes They Come Back, the first one, than this. Oh, yeah, I'd watch that first one, but I'm talking about the low, low king, that third one, a lot of those Children of the Corn. Yeah, I agree, Stuart. This is kind of just middle of the tier bad for me. Yeah, it's just not complete. And 
I would say in general, in thinking about the Skeleton Crew story collection, they don't really lend themselves to complete feature-length storylines. There's just not a lot to most of those stories. They're kind of simple tales with a lot of ambiguity, and I just don't know that there's a good movie in them other than maybe The Monkey. I do know there is one more Skeleton Crew story in production coming to a screen very soon. It may actually already be out as of this recording. It is not. Survivor type. Arnie, if you remember that one, it's the short story about a drug dealer that's on a ship. He gets shipwrecked on a desert island with only himself, and he starts eating himself. He becomes a cannibal of his own body. Been a while. I've reread Grandma. Well, it's coming back as a half-hour episode of Creepshow, the TV series. Right, I've heard that that's coming back. Stephen King has been pimping it heavily. Yes, it's there is a streaming service called Shudder that I believe is run by AMC. Didn't they bring Critters back too? They yes. did do a Critters TV show, and they are probably going to do other 80s franchise as well. It seems to be doing well. Ghoulies, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> we can hope, but again, maybe that is the place for Stephen King short stories that are commercially released. His half-hour anthology stories like Creep show i'm rooting for that one i loved the vibe of creep show the first movie and would like for it to resemble something close to that i agree i'm just here's what i can say about mercy is first of all it's made me happy to watch angry birds the movie next week i didn't think anything would make me want to watch angry birds the movie but i now think it might be better than mercy I'm still pretty angry about it, I'll be honest. As, yeah. <laughs> as everything in the video game retrospective does seem to make me angry. And then when we return to King in a month, we're going to be talking some seriously good King, possibly after the It miniseries. Yeah, I'm like, just stop with your overpraise. <laughs> I remember liking Tim Curry. I don't remember liking the ABC miniseries. It's beloved now. Maybe. I mean, if, if everything's based on a sliding scale, then yes, it's starting to look like uphill. I know that there's a lot of young Gen X and older millennials who hold the TV miniseries in high regard, so I'm going to keep an open mind and return to it, even though the twice I've seen it, I really was underwhelmed. But it was better than Mercy! Yes, it was at least complete, and that will be nice to see. In the meantime, if you want more crazy, this Friday we're closing out Leone with Once Upon a Time in America. At the same time, Tarantino's new movie, the movie I most wanted to see this summer, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opens. We'll have that review out for people that have donated for Tarantino or who want to be patrons next week. And then, of course, we've got a couple theatrical releases before it as well. Hobbs and Shaw. I think that's Jacob's most anticipated film of the summer. At least for that franchise, it's it's the one I'm anticipating the most. And the DC movie that nobody knew was coming, including us, we had to rush to throw it on the schedule. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, and Tiffany Haddish are going to be in some kind of kitchen. What? Just women in the kitchen? That seems very sexist. Hell's Kitchen. It's a period piece in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, it looks like they want to be in a Scorsese film, and maybe not. But uh, hopefully, I don't know the comic book, but I'm, I'm rooting for good films at this point. Absolutely. So, listeners, thank you. We hope you can join us this Friday for our bonus show, Once Upon a Time in America. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining us. And listeners, after this movie... In the immortal words of Uncle Jesse, please, have mercy.
You gotta get out of here. What? It's for your own good, Georgie. I'm not going anywhere. I can protect you, Grandma. I love you. I love you too. More than anything. But you can't save me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Great, that's good for me. Hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. He wouldn't imagine any of this if he hadn't told him those goddamn stories. Don't blame me. What he's saying is different from the stories. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Yeah, she's pretty regular. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Isn't that a little scary for him? Oh, hell no. Just about a guy trying to kill his entire family. My daddy did it all the time. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. She got what she wanted, but there was a price. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You know, we had to get a few roommates to defray the costs. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Look, I know this is hard, but we're in this together, okay? And we're going to face this with love and dignity. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Folks say that if God won't help, what's up there will welcome you with open arms. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. This is an advertisement for dying young. Associate produced by Jason. You can just keep running. It'd be suicide to go back. Now Playing is edited by Stephen and Arnie. What if you fail? Who's going to help then? Now Playing, credit narration by Brock. Who are you talking to? The girl next door. The girl next door. God. Maybe. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. No way such a job, isn't it? Tell folks what to believe. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Yeah, see? Look at the hate's angry. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. If she catches you, she will eat you. 
and shit you out in hell. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. No matter what challenges we face, we'll face them as a family. Just like Grandma wanted. The short story has so much inner monologue with the boy George that it's with with a boy named George. <laughs> yes, not boy Just George. Just to clarify, I don't tumble for you. There's no karma chameleon showing up. Yeah, that's the monster at the end. It's real scary. <laughs> the star of the episode is Barrett Oliver, who is also the star of the Never Ending Story. If oh. you saw that movie. I'm like, who the hell is this? Okay, never-ending story kid. I saw the never-ending story a lot as a kid, so I yeah. didn't recognize him now. Is he the one in the adventure or the one just reading the book? Yeah, not the warrior kid. He's the one at home. Not Artreyu? Yeah. I pulled that out of my head. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, I knew it started with an A. <laughs> I even read the book several times. And listeners, after this movie, in the immortal words of Uncle Jesse... Please have mercy. We're going with the full house, Ed. Yeah, we're going with the full house. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it out. Just give it a rest, okay?